the epistle of Jude, and we'll look tonight at verses 3 through 19. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Father, we see the fruit of those who are devoid of the Spirit. And so we ask that far from being devoid of the Spirit, that you would fill us with the Spirit tonight. Pour out the Spirit upon us as we read these words that he has inspired Open our minds, open our hearts, renew our minds, give us grace to think clearly and to act upon what we know and what we learn. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the third time now that we have gone over Jude's admonition in verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. That really is, I think, the central burden of this letter. Contend earnestly for the faith. We don't know exactly to which ancient church Jude wrote this letter, but whomever or wherever they were, they were facing a situation in which they needed to contend for the faith. They were facing an infiltration of false teachers, an infiltration of men who by their lips and by their lives, as we read, were threatening to lead others astray, threatening to lead others away from the Lord. And in the face of these wolves coming in to carry away God's sheep, Jude wants 
the people in this church to contend for what they know is right, to contend for the true faith. And in so doing, it would seem from these verses that we just read that Jude would also have them contend against false teaching and against those who teach it. And in the middle section of this letter, Jude does a little contending himself, doesn't he? In this middle portion of the letter, Jude goes on a diatribe, really, against the wolves that are ravaging Christ's flock. It's a righteous diatribe, no doubt, but it is a diatribe, I think, a a tirade almost that he is on against these men who are destroying God's people. This is an impassioned denunciation of false teachers that have crept into the Lord's sheepfold, and we need to hear it as that. We need to hear it in that tone of voice tonight. And in the midst of, of, of his righteous anger, and indignation, I want to show you tonight that Jude does basically two things in these verses. He shows us, first of all, the characteristics of the false teachers in his own day, and he also informs us of their fate. And those are the two big headings tonight, the characteristics of the false teachers and their fate. Now, Jude doesn't lay it out quite that neatly, does it? And most of us wouldn't if we were as riled up as he is. He's writing an impassioned letter, remember. And so his words almost just seem to spill onto the page just rapidly. So there are a few words about the false teacher's destruction and then a few about their nasty traits and then a little bit more about their impending doom and then some further spotlight on their ugly attributes and back and forth like that for about 16 Verses here. But we're going to try to comb through Jube's passion tonight and, and divide up all that he says into two basic concerns that seem to be uppermost in his mind. We're going to try to put everything into two separate piles, if you will. And so, first of all, let's comb through the letter and see what Jude says about the characteristics of these false teachers. Their characteristics. Now, we could probably list a dozen or more bullet points under this heading. Jude has a lot to say about these men in these few verses. But instead of listing all the different things individually, I try to group these false teacher traits, which pour forth from Jude's pen, into just five categories. So the first big heading is the characteristics of these false teachers. But now underneath it, I'm going to give you five sub-points, five categories, five separate characteristics of the false teachers in Jude's day and situation. And let me just go ahead and give them to you now, and then we'll go back through each one individually. Five traits of these false teachers. Number one, guile, cunning. Number two, heresy, which is serious, destructive theological error. Number three, self-direction. These men are getting... Their doctrines not from God, but from their own minds and wills. Number four, ungodliness, their behavior. And then number five, bad fruit. Guile, heresy, self-direction, ungodliness, bad fruit. These are the characteristics of the wolves that were ravaging the church of Jesus Christ in Jude's day and situation. And before we look at those five traits individually, I do want to emphasize those words in Jude's day and situation. What we're going to see tonight is not an exhaustive catalog of all the ways that false teachers might act, or of all the false things that they might teach, or of all the manners in which they might lead people astray. Jude tonight is simply talking about the men who are infiltrating the church in his day. And because he's speaking about those particular false teachers, we should also recognize that not every false teacher today will necessarily possess all five of these traits. These are traits of those teachers. Some teachers today may not fit every single mold. Some false teachers today may sound all five of these alarms. But others of them may possess only one or two of these traits and yet still be false teachers. Just for an example, a man's doctrine may be heretical and he may lead people astray and yet he may 
be a, a pretty nice guy and live a fairly clean life, right? He may not meet all the qualifications that, that these teachers met, but he's still a false teacher if his doctrine is heretical. Or, on the other hand, if a man's life is horrible, he can still do damage to God's flock, even if what he says from the pulpit is straight as an arrow. So we're not saying that everything Jude says tonight applies to every false teacher, and we're not saying that every false teacher or every false teaching is mentioned in Jude's letter. So we just take what's on the page, and then we try to apply it to our own situation. So with those provisos in mind... Though, let's now take a look at Jude's list. Number one, characteristic of false teachers, guile. Guile. The false teachers against whom Jude is contending are characterized by sneakiness, craftiness, cunning, guile. We've seen this already, haven't we, from verse 4. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now remember, Jude is not so much writing in this letter against false teachers who purvey their false religions outside the church and in their own meetings and under the banner of their own religions. He is writing against those who have gotten inside the church, those who claim to be a part of the church, and who seek to teach their heresies under the banner of Christianity. Now you think about it. If you're trying to claim that you're a Christian, you're trying to claim that what you teach is Christian teaching, but you know that it's different from what they're used to, how are you going to convince them to listen to you? If what you're teaching and calling Christianity is something that clearly contradicts the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, what are you going to do to try to get it into people's minds, to try to get them to listen to you? Well, there's a good chance you'll try to sneak it in rather than just making a lot of initial waves, right? That's what we find in the book of Jude. These men didn't show up at the church announcing that they'd come to proclaim a different religion. They didn't come with sandwich boards hung around their necks announcing the deviations that they hoped to introduce into the church. They crept in. They flew in under the radar. And they were evidently still under the radar in some ways because Jude calls them hidden reefs in verse 12. And what's so dangerous about a hidden reef is that it might punch a hole in the bottom of your boat without you ever realizing it's there until it's too late. And that's how false teachers often are. The longer they can allow you to think that they really believe pretty much the same thing as you do, the more inroads they can make and the more converts they can win. That's why liberal pastors, when they enter a church that still holds to some form of biblical authority and infallibility, may not always stand up on the first Sunday and announce, now, I'm glad to be your pastor, but you should all be aware that I don't believe in the virgin birth, and I have a slightly different understanding of Jesus' resurrection than what you probably believe, and I'm a bit skeptical, actually, about whether we can really trust Paul as much as we trust the red words of Jesus in the New Testament. They don't say that, do they? Certain persons have crept in, Jude says. And not only is there guile in the way these men try and sneak their views in among the godly, but also, verse 16, there is guile in the way they use flattery to gain a hearing. They tell people what they want to hear. They tickle their ears. They feed them with strategically placed compliments and therefore they can win them into their confidence and more easily purvey their new doctrines among them. That's a form of guile, isn't it? Flattery. It's a form of sneakiness, trickery, and such was the strategy of the false teachers in Jude's day and situation. And such is the manner of many in our own day. False teachers even today creep in often. They're not always forthright about what they believe. They try to sneak things in sideways. They try to make you think that their sect or their cult is really Christianity just like you. We have a few minor differences, but we're really basically the same. Take our literature. Or they flatter and tickle ears. Now, How do we guard against this? How do we recognize false teaching when the false teachers themselves are shrouding it over so that it's not easily seen? 
Well, you've all heard the illustration, I'm sure, about recognizing counterfeit money. How do you recognize counterfeit money? What's the best way? Well, it's been said that one of the best ways, at least, is to know what the real thing looks like, right? If you know exactly what a dollar bill looks like, and that's your job to study that and to recognize counterfeits, then you're going to recognize any counterfeit that someone comes up with because it's going to deviate from what you know is right. And that's what we have to do, right? We have to know the truth so well We have to have such a taste in our mouths for the truth that we immediately recognize when people are adding ingredients to it or taking them away. Some time ago, my wife uh, and Ashley Witt had a discussion about spaghetti sauce. Uh, Using a little bit of guile from time to time, uh, each one of them will buy a spaghetti sauce that's different from the kind that I like and John likes. We, we like different kinds, but one or the other of them said, you know, I used a different kind of spaghetti sauce the other day, and my husband, the first bite, he knew it was wrong. And the other wife, which, whichever one came second, said, I did the same thing, and how did he know? Well, that's how we should be with doctrine, isn't it? It's, it's one thing to know your spaghetti sauce, but you should have such a taste for cardinal biblical doctrines that if someone adds an ingredient or takes it away you'll know immediately something's not right here and you'll be able to get to the bottom of it that's how you overcome guile and that's the first characteristic that Jude mentions of these false teachers the second one is heresy heresy Now, this is probably the ultimate hallmark of a false teacher. It's what we probably think of first when someone raises this subject of false teaching. What makes a false teacher is that he teaches what is false, right? Now, as I said, um, I think in the last message on Jude, I said this. Jude is particularly concerned with serious error, heresy, as I just called it. Not just minor things. No teacher of the Bible is going to get everything right, are they? Different godly men disagree, for instance, as to whether Christ's return will be premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. And they can't all be right, can they? Some of them are wrong. And yet, even though some men may be mistaken about this, we don't necessarily classify them as false teachers or as heretics because the millennium is not a cardinal doctrine of the faith, right? And neither, for instance, is church government or the doctrine of spiritual gifts or baptism or so on. And so when Jude goes on this harangue against the false teachers, he's not throwing dirt on every pastor who holds a different view from him on secondary issues. The men against whom his face is so boldly set are those who teach falsely on the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Those who teach false doctrine that, if believed, will send people to hell. Those who teach false doctrine that seriously besmirches the name of the Lord. False doctrine that promotes ungodly behavior. Heresy is what we'd call it. Heresy is error that will damn you. And that's what Jude, I think, is concerned with here. Not just minor disagreements, but heresy. And we can see that, I think, in the very sorts of errors that he mentions there in verse 4. Note, first of all, that the men against whom Jude writes are, quote, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. In other words, these men are teaching people, maybe from the pulpit or maybe from the grassroots, level of the pews by word of mouth they're teaching people something like this God is a God of grace right he forgives sins he pardons our error he's not a great big judge in the sky and so all these rules about how Christians should live really are unimportant we're free we're not required to uphold certain behavioral norms that would be legalism we believe in grace So stop being so uptight about holiness and law and behavior. God's grace gives us a license to to live as we like. That would be nice, wouldn't it, to the carnal man? That's what carnal men want. They want God to give them grace and then still to be able to live how they want. And that's where the word licentiousness comes from, the idea that we have license to do what comes naturally. 
And apparently some in Jude's day were teaching that the grace of God that covers our sins actually gives us a license to continue in them. Now I hope you see that that's serious error. Not only does it fly in the face of so much that is black and white on the pages of Scripture, it teaches us that we must do what is godly and we must live holy as followers of Jesus. But this teaching also defames God. Isn't that what Jude says? This teaching turns the grace of our God upside down. God's grace is designed to set us free from sin's power, not to set us free from the idea that there even is such a thing as sin. Grace, God's grace, leads to holiness, not license. Grace makes us more circumspect, not less. And not because we think that holiness saves us, but because we finally got the ability and the desire to live to please God. And to say anything else about grace is to turn it upside down. And since it's God's grace, it is to defame God himself. And this teaching is serious for another reason as well. And that is that it keeps men out of heaven. You tell someone the grace of God gives you license to live as you please, to do what comes naturally, will keep men and women out of heaven. Because... In telling men and women that grace gives them license to live as they please, we're giving them permission to continue in sin. And if they have permission to continue in sin, they'll never repent, will they? And if they don't repent, they don't know the Lord. And if they have a grace that doesn't make them more like Jesus, that doesn't set them free to become like Christ, then they don't have true grace either. What they have, rather, is a substitute and a false assurance. I've got grace. No, you don't. You just think you do. And if you only think you have grace, but you don't have the real thing, then you don't have heaven either. People may never recognize that they've only got the counterfeit until it's too late. And so any teaching like that that is spoken against here in Jude 4, which promotes a continuation in sin, is serious error pursue sanctification hebrew says without which no one will see the lord we need to be aware of this in our own day i don't know that i see this form of error hey we're under grace so live however you want i don't know that i see this form of error in its full-blown fashion as it may have been in jude's day at least not in the circles that i know of but this kind of thing is everywhere it seems to me in seed form as churches de-emphasize holiness. They may not say what Jude is saying, but they may not be saying, or what Jude is, is saying, the false teachers say, but they may not be saying what the Bible says about holiness either. And churches ignore church discipline and don't follow up when people are living in sin. And many teachers also draw a false distinction between receiving Jesus as Savior and receiving him as Lord that leads people thinking, I can have grace without being different than I was. In other words, I don't know many teachers that are actually promoting the heresy found in Jude 4 exactly, but by not promoting the truth that is the opposite of the heresy, the requirement for Christian holiness is often unknown to many who call themselves followers of Jesus, and they're left in much the same place as those who bought into this ancient heresy, believing that the grace of God is simply a way for them to get to heaven, and now that I'm going to heaven, no matter how I live, I'll be okay. I walk the aisle, I join the church, I receive God's grace, I'm okay. This is one heresy that Jude writes against here, the idea that grace gives us license to live how we choose. But then Jude also mentions in verse 4 that the false teachers in his day deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny Jesus. And this is where so many heresies actually have their roots. People deny Jesus because they don't get Jesus right biblically. They have a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. And 
And these people here, we're told, deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jude may mean here that they are denying Jesus by virtue of the heresy that we've just been discussing. By turning grace on its head and making people free, feel free to sin, they're denying Jesus. That may be what he's saying. But he may also have meant that in addition to promoting licentiousness, these men also deny Jesus in some other way. And there are many ways in which people claim to believe in Jesus but end up denying him. For instance, in some places and times, men have arisen who either denied or de-emphasized the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was God come down, they say, and maybe he appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually a, a flesh and blood man like I am standing before you tonight. I hope you see that that's serious error. It denies the clear teaching of the Bible. It dishonors the Lord because it dishonors the love he showed by becoming one of us. And it leaves us without a savior too, doesn't it? Because the wages of sin is death. And we say that Christ died for our sins. But how could Christ die for our sins if he did not actually take on human flesh? That's one of the ways false teachers in Jude's day, may have been denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, denying that he actually was really human. But much more prevalent in our own day is that people of various stripes deny that Jesus is actually God. That's more common to hear today, isn't it? Modern man seems willing to believe that there could have been a man named Jesus, and maybe there probably was, but many people are not willing to consent to the idea that this man was in fact the God-man, that this man was in fact Almighty God come down to dwell among us. And this heresy comes in various forms, doesn't it? And not only from those who do not claim to believe in Jesus at all, but this heresy is promoted by people who do. For instance, many liberal theologians who would call themselves Christians would say Jesus was a mere man. He was a great teacher, maybe specially anointed by God, but everyone knows that it's unrealistic to think that Jesus was really God himself. Or, with a slightly different bent, perhaps the Jehovah's Witnesses also do not believe that Jesus is God. And Mormonism espouses a view of Jesus that seems, if I understand it, to treat him as a God, but not the God. A God, but not the God. All these denials of the full deity of Jesus Christ are great slander. Can you imagine God coming into the world and saying to you, I am, and you looking at him and saying, no, you're not. That's what they're being... That's what they're saying. It's great slander. It's great heresy. No matter how kind and gentle the people may be who espouse it. A Jesus who is not God cannot save us any more than a Jesus who is not man. And while we're speaking of denying the Lord Jesus, we also can't fail to mention the modern tendency to try and find the, quote, true Jesus who is supposedly buried beneath all the conspiracies of old. We found the true Jesus. He was romantically involved with Mary Magdalene. Or he lived on and had children of his own. And there's a whole other story that we've never been told. Or, you know, they found Jesus' bones in a box somewhere. He, He didn't really rise from the dead. We have his bones. It says Jesus on the side of the box. Or the Jesus who was gay. All of these things are monstrous fabrications about which Jude, were he with us today, would, I think, dash off several more verses of fiery denunciations. So then, the false teachers in Jude's day were turning grace into a license to sin. And either in that way or perhaps in another, they were actually denying the Lord Jesus himself. And this is one of the chief characteristics of false teachers in any age. They teach false doctrines that slander the Lord and that destroy souls 
and lead to sin. They teach heresy. Now, there are, of course, other heresies and other heretics who call themselves Christians and who are destroying souls in the church that Jude doesn't mention here. There are groups that pervert the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a main heresy. Various aberrant views of the triune God. That's prevalent among Jehovah's Witnesses, among Mormons, among Oneness Pentecostals. And another heresy that destroys souls and that that slanders the Lord is legalism. Legalism says we must be right with God on the strength of our effort and our works. And that's an integral part, for instance, of Roman Catholic theology. And it keeps people out of heaven. And so we must always beware We must know the cardinal doctrines of the faith the way a counterfeit investigator who works for the FBI would know the dollar bill so that we're never led astray by the various deviations that slander God and destroy souls. So that's the second characteristics of the false teachers in the book of Jude, heresy. I'll have to move a little bit more quickly through the other three. Number three is self-direction. Self-direction. Many of the teachings of these heretics are so strange, so wild-eyed, that you might wonder, how on earth did they come up with that? How can somebody read the Bible and think like that? Well, answer, one of the characteristics of the false teachers in Jude's day, and of many since, is that they're often far more concerned about their own personal revelations and ideas than they are to carefully read and understand this book. Now, I know that sometimes people can read the Bible and, and miss it, misinterpret what's on the page and end up in the wrong place. But often people read the Bible and end up in really wrong, bad places because they're helped along by their own or someone else's personal revelations and ideas. And this is one of Jude's critiques of the false teachers in his own day. They have arrived at their dangerous positions, verse 8, by... Dreaming. Do you see that? Why do they defile the flesh? Why do they reject authority? Why do they revile angelic majesties? Why do they do some of the things that they do that you wouldn't think any Christian would do? It's because they're listening to the dreams inside their head. And verse 8, again, they reject authority. They reject authority. They've come to their own conclusions, in other words, They don't need to know what God's authoritative scriptures say. They've come to their own conclusions, and they've made them into their own faith, and they've tried to call it Christianity. They're basing what they believe, and they're basing how they live, verse 10, on their own animal instincts, rather than on the testimony of biblical revelation. Does any of this sound familiar? How did the false teaching of Mormonism come into existence in the first place? It's through the visions of Joseph Smith. He wasn't reading his Bible one day and said, you know, I think, I think we've had it all wrong. He had, he had these visions, and then he went back and he reinterpreted things and created his own faith. And how is it that so many people in many mainline churches in our country are willing to listen to the drivel that's pervade from liberal pulpits that does no one any good, how do, they, how do people listen to that? So much stuff that, that is not biblically true. Well, it's because as a group, by and large, many of them have rejected authority. They've rejected biblical authority. They've decided instead that they are going to determine what they believe and whether they will accept certain biblical teachings based on their own gut feelings, based on what Jesus probably actually meant or what Jesus probably actually said or what he actually did. Let's not not trust Luke or Paul or Matthew or any of the other writers who wrote in the first century and who were or who knew the eyewitnesses. No, 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 no. We know better than they do. Our instincts can tell us when Peter is getting the story right or when Mark is getting it wrong. They rely on their own instincts. And have you noticed how people like to read books? 
about heaven, about hell, about what it's like to really hear from Jesus. Books that were written by authors who aren't trying to understand and grapple with the text of the scripture, but are telling you, I'm going to teach you about heaven. I'm going to teach you about hell. I'm going to teach you how to hear the voice of Jesus based on my own personal experience. That's how error creeps in. And it's dangerous. Even if the revelations that somebody is giving or the gut feelings that they are following are not really heretical in themselves. Sometimes the people who kind of imagine things and they put it out on the page or out on the TV screen, what they say is is maybe not the end of the world. But it's still dangerous because... If we listen to that, we're slowly becoming comfortable with the idea that what we believe about God should maybe come from personal experiences and from extra-biblical revelations and from something inside rather than from what's on the pages of the Bible. And so the person who captures your attention with some personal revelation that they have to share may not themselves actually be a false teacher or a heretic, Maybe they're just someone who's confused and mostly harmless, but they may be unwittingly greasing the skids for the heretic who's going to come behind them who also has dreams and revelations, but which dreams and revelations will land you much, much farther away from the tree of biblical revelation. The faith really was handed down to the saints once for all, verse 3. And so we do not need to add to it, and we must not add to it by means of our own self-directed ideas. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't sometimes nudge us or that our gut sense of a certain situation is always wrong or even that God might not impress something upon us in a dream But we don't base what we believe on those sorts of subjective things, do we? We do not hold that our experiences are authoritative, either for us or for other people. In other words, we take them with a grain of salt and we reject what we've experienced wholesale if we find that it introduces something that is heretofore unheard of to the Christian faith. The faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, doesn't need any help, does it? It's a glorious faith. It gives us a triune God. It gives us the second person of that Trinity being incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. It tells us that he walked among us and healed the sick and and befriended the sinners and taught the multitudes and did miracles and lived without sin. It tells us about the blood of the eternal covenant and the forgiveness of sins that comes from that blood and the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his return so that we might raise from the dead and the final judgment and the eternal glory that belongs to God's children. We don't need to add anything to that, do we? And all of that has been handed down once for all, Jude says. It will not change, no matter how vivid our dreams or our senses may be so beware of this tendency for false teachers to introduce new doctrines by means of dreams or visions or personal instincts or other subjective forms of finding so-called truth and then let me touch on a fourth characteristic of the false teachers in jude's day ungodliness ungodliness guile heresy self-direction ungodly living. I think Jude actually says more about this than, in the, than any of these other traits. We don't have time tonight to look at every, every aspect of this in detail, but let me just walk you through briefly and point out the ungodliness of these men with whom Jude is contending. Notice, first of all, just how Jude emphasizes this word ungodly throughout these verses. Verse 4 Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And then verse 18. In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And then listen to it in verse 15. Rapid fire. 
God is coming, he says, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four times in one verse, ungodly. Do you think that he's concerned about the way these men live? It's not just their teaching that's in error, it's their lives. And listen to Jude describe their lives in a little bit more detail. Verse 16, he talks about how they are following after their own lusts. And verse 8, along the same lines, they defile the flesh. And their shame, in verse 13, is cast up like the foam of the sea. All of which... Lust, flesh, shame, sounds, doesn't it, like one particular facet of the ungodliness of these men with sexual immorality. Isn't that what it sounds like? And that is confirmed, it seems to me, when we see the connection between verse 8 and what comes before it in verse 7. We saw in verse 8 that these false teachers defile the flesh. But verse 8 begins with the phrase, yet in the same way. These men also by dreaming defile the flesh. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way as the men that he spoke about in verse 7, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who defiled the flesh by engaging in gross immorality. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, wasn't it? Sexual immorality. And now in verse 8 he says, in the same way these men defile the flesh by means of sexual immorality. And then notice other forms of ungodliness that Jude mentions. In verse 16, he says, these are grumblers, finding fault, complaining, criticizing. And then later in the verse, he speaks of their arrogance, which also seems to be in view in verses 8 through 10, where Jude says that these men revile angels and even seem to think that they have the devil by the tail. We, we can talk to the angels how we want. We've got the devil in our grips. And arrogance in verse 12, and that they sit at the Lord's Supper, even in all their immorality. They're willing to come to the love feast and sit there among the people of God, taking in the bread and the cup that symbolize the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 13, we're told that they're selfish men, too, caring for themselves, so unlike the Spirit of Christ. Are you hearing these indictments? Lust and defiling the flesh, grumbling, finding fault, arrogance, selfishness. That's not the list of qualities that a pastor search committee is usually looking for, is it? Nor are these the kind of men usually at the top of the list when the elders are looking for who is going to teach Sunday school next year. And yet somehow these men had gained an influence in this church to whom Jude writes so passionately. Somehow the church had either allowed them to become teachers or maybe these men had just begun to assert their ideas from pew to pew. But they have an influence, these These wicked, sinful men have an influence over the people of God. These are not the sort of men or women from whom we should be learning, are they? In fact, even if what they were teaching had been correct, these men still should not have been teachers, should they? Just read the qualifications for elders in Timothy and Titus, and you'll see that that's patently clear. These men shouldn't have been elders. They shouldn't have even been members of the church. Their behavior proved that that they weren't Christians at all. And that brings up an interesting point that I mentioned briefly earlier. And that is that a man can do severe damage to God's flock, even though his teaching may be orthodox. Now, in Jude's situation, of course, the false teachers were destructive in both ways. Their teaching was false, and so was their living. But it's possible for a man to be orthodox in the pulpit and yet a wrecking ball in his personal character and example. Or to put it another way, a man can be a false teacher because of what he teaches with his lips, but he can also be a false teacher because of what he teaches with his life. You see what I'm saying? 
A man who teaches falsely with his life may not be a theological heretic. We may not even technically call him a false teacher because that term usually refers to a person's doctrine. But even if his doctrine is right, a man can still be a wolf among the sheep of God, tearing them to bits with his selfishness and his accusations and his anger and his lust and his ungodly behavior. Many of us have heard these sorts of stories in churches, and we should pray that they're never repeated here. The false teachers against whom Jude wrote were erroneous in both regards. They harried God's flock with both their lips and their lives, but either one is bad enough. Either one is cause for a church to cease listening to a man's teaching. He may be as nice and as sweet as can be, but if he doesn't teach what's in this book, he has to sit down. And he may teach as clear as a bell from the pages of Scripture, but if his life is ungodly like these men's lives, then he has to sit down and he has to be silenced. So what have we said so far about the false teachers in the book of Jude? They were characterized by guile, cunning, as many false teachers are today. They were teaching heresy, doctrine which defames God and destroys souls. They were self-directed, following their own visions and instincts rather than the authority that God has placed in his word. And they were ungodly, proud, immoral, and accusing and then in the fifth place, these false teachers were characterized by bad fruit. Bad fruit. Isn't that what Jesus said? You look for a false teacher or a true teacher, how do you know them? By their fruits, right? Well, what was the fruit of these men? What was, what was the result of their attempts to lead God's people? Well, look at verse 13, or verse 12, excuse me. Jude calls them clouds without water. Clouds without water, what is that good for, right? And then he calls them autumn trees without fruit. In other words, no one was helped by their ministry. There was no, there was no fresh rain of, of God's word coming down on the people. There was no fruit springing up from the ground. No one was moved forward by their doctrine. In fact, I think verse 4 probably indicates that people were actually being moved backwards. Because when Jude accuses these men of turning the grace of our God into licentiousness, I think he's probably not simply saying that the false teachers promoted licentiousness in their own lives only, but that they were probably leading others into the same cesspool. And that may be why Jude calls on his readers down in verse 23 to snatch some folks out of the fire, folks who seem to have been polluted by the flesh. So the false teachers produce no real fruit, verse 12, and in fact, they seem to have had the opposite effect. Their teaching and their example seem to have planted many bad seeds that were springing up in bad fruit, licentiousness. And not only licentiousness, but also the bad fruit of division. Verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Division is bad fruit, isn't it? These men were apparently slicing the church into factions by their errors. And I imagine that what that probably means is that while some people were being led astray by these strange teachings and strong personalities, others were holding fast to the old orthodoxy and they were butting heads. And the church was perhaps fracturing because of that. And that's sad when it happens, isn't it? But it does happen And woe to men who incite division because they refuse to teach what is true and they refuse to live what is godly. Woe to those who poison the Lord's vineyard so that the good fruit begins to be choked out and bad fruit starts to come up in its place. So then, guile, heresy, self-direction, ungodliness, bad fruit. Watch for these things in anyone who claims to be a teacher of God's truth. Test those to whom you listen along these lines, whether they be your pastor or your Sunday school teacher or your Christian neighbor who's trying to convince you of something or the TV preacher or the radio preacher or the musical artist who teaches you through his or her lyrical compositions. Be aware of guile, heresy, self-direction, ungodly living, and bad fruit. These are some of the signs of a wolf among God's sheep. 
And before we leave this first big point, let me just contrast this with the men to whom we ought to give our ears. The men to whom we ought to listen will be men not of guile, but of forthrightness and clarity and honesty. Men who will tell you straight up, this is what I believe. And their doctrine will be true. And it will be old. Because it will be straight out of the pages of the Bible. And they won't be innovators. They won't waste your time telling you about their own visions or their own gut feelings. They'll just stick to the text And their lives will be according to the book too. Not perfectly, but sincerely. They'll be men molded more and more into the image of Jesus. And if you really know the Lord, you'll grow under their ministry. You and those around you who really know the Lord will bear fruit under their teaching. Now we spent so much time on the characteristics of the false teachers that we're going to have to give much shorter shrift to their fate but I think it's fairly straightforward such that we can do that. So let's spend a few minutes on that before we close. The, the characteristics of the false teachers, yes, but what about their fate? What does Jude say is going to happen to these men, to these wolves among the flock of God? Well, look at verse 13, first of all. Jude calls them wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And I think Jude may have been thinking about what we call shooting stars. You've seen them? We know they're not actually stars, but we call them that and so does Jude. Shooting stars. They fall from the sky and what happens to them? They disintegrate before our eyes into the blackness of the night and we never see them again. And this will be the fate of these false teachers, he said. And then he expands on this in verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did you hear it? To execute judgment so these men are not going to fade to black simply of their own dead weight they're going to disappear under the active judgment of the lord christ will come someday verse 14 and these men who have ravaged god's flock will be thrown into outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and their worm will not die, and the fire will not be quenched. That is the fate of the false teachers of Jude's own era and of every era, unless they repent and turn to Christ. Indeed, indeed Jude says in verse 4 that they were long before marked out for this condemnation. And then Jude gives a handful of examples throughout this middle section of the book, of how God does not trifle with those who commit these kinds of errors of which the false teachers are guilty. First of all, in verse 5, think of the Israelites in the wilderness. God rescued them, right, out of Egypt. And, and they claimed to be the people of God. But some of them didn't believe. And what did God do in verse 5 to those who didn't believe? He destroyed them. And so he will do with these false teachers who claim to be God's people and yet who do not take him at his word. Or think of the angels in verse 6. You remember the angels? They refused to submit to God's authority, some of them. They refused to remain in the position that God had given them, and it was a grand position. And God judged them. And he'll judge these false teachers too who also reject authority and who also go their own way. And then in verse 7, think of, think of the fire that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah when they engaged in gross immorality. And do you think God will react any differently to these false teachers who seem to be engaged in the same sorts of sin? And then in verse 11, he mentions Cain and Balaam and Korah. Let me read you what the commentator Michael Green says about Cain. Jude may mean that as Cain murdered Abel's body, 
so these men murder the souls of others. Cain murdered his brother. He destroyed his brother. And Jude may be saying that's exactly what these men do. They destroy people. And woe to them, Jude says in the first three words of verse 11. Woe to them who follow in the steps who have gone the way of Cain. And woe to them also who follow in the steps of Balaam. Balaam helped the pagan king Balak to lure the people of Israel into sexual immorality back in the book of Numbers. Does that sound familiar? Luring God's people to sin? That's what's going on here, isn't it? That's what Jude says in verse 4. These men are promoting licentiousness. They're doing exactly what Balaam did. Woe to these people who are like Balaam, leading God's people, luring God's people into sin. And woe also, he says, to those who, like Korah, also in the book of Numbers, stand against God's authority. You remember Korah? He stood against God's representative, Moses. And in standing against Moses, he was standing against the authority of the living God. And again, that's what these teachers are up to, isn't it? Isn't that what we read? They reject authority, verse 8. And Jude says here in verse 11, Woe to them. Black darkness is reserved for them. And in fact, just go back and read sometime what happened to Cain and to Balaam and to Korah. They didn't, any of them, finish well. And Jude specifically alludes to the fact here in verse 11 that Korah and his followers perished in their rebellion. These false teachers are going to perish in the rebellion of Korah. And the reason that he uses that imagery is because Korah and his followers perished in their rebellion. Do you remember the story in number 16? They stood against Moses. They stood against the authority of God. And the earth opened up underneath these men like a mouth and swallowed them down whole. And such will be the fate of the false teachers too, Jude seems to be saying in verse 11. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. They too will go down to the pit. This is serious business. God is not to be trifled with, is he? This is a hard passage. Jude says hard words because God is not to be fooled around with. His word is not to be added to. His word is not to be subtracted from. His authority is not to be bucked or questioned. His grace is not to be distorted. His son is not to be denied or remade into whatever image we seem to prefer as modern men. His people are not to be trampled upon or led into sin by their leaders. And those who do such things have great woe hanging over their heads, Jude says. So then, what is the final word of application tonight? Well, let me give you three and a half verses of Scripture as we close. First, for all of you who listen and who follow, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Don't believe everything that you hear. Secondly, a warning to those of us who lead and teach. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And I think the book of Jude bears that out. Thirdly, to the man who desires to be an elder and to the man who is an elder. Titus 1.9 requires that an elder be a man who is, quote, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to instruct in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It is my job, it is Keith's job, it is Charles's job, it is the elders in other churches' jobs to refute those who contradict, to contend earnestly for the faith. And I believe Jude would have us all in our places to do that as well.
And that's the last half verse. For all of us who live in a fallen world in which Satan is on the prowl and in which heresy and ungodliness are always a threat to the church of Christ, Jude 3b, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints.